Hello and welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast. This is your host, Stephen Robles, and joining me this week is Wes Hilliard. Thanks for joining me, Wes. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. And so we have huge stuff coming in the next week. Obviously, WWDC is going to be happening starting Monday, June 22nd. The keynote will be at 1 p.m. Eastern. And want to let you know right here at the top of this episode, we'll actually have a special bonus episode of the Apple Insider Podcast that will release. Monday afternoon, recapping everything that happened at WWDC's main keynote. And so look for that bonus episode Monday, and you can hear about all the recaps and uh, what was talked about. So be sure to check that out. But this week, there's actually been something in the news that definitely, I think, warrants discussion. So company Hey.com. Hey.com is made by the team at Basecamp. Basecamp is a project management and teamwork tool. And they have been working for the past year or so developing kind of a new thought on email. And so they launched recently Hey.com. It's still invitation only. You can't sign up for an account right now just if you want to. You can request an invite, uh, which I did. Which Do you have an invite or did you get access to it, Wes? Uh, no, I didn't. I really hadn't even heard about it until this started. Okay. Hey.com, you can request an in- invite. That is the website too, just Hey.com. But their app in the App Store, which the original app was approved, it was there, you can download it. I think you can still download it at this point. But news came out that Apple blocked an update they were trying to push to their iOS app because Hey.com did not allow you to sign up for their subscription service, which is $100 a year, in the app. Now, the history on this is if a developer chooses to allow customers to pay for something in the app, a digital product mainly, like Netflix is another example, which we'll get back to. You know, you can't sign up for Netflix in the iOS app. You have to go outside of it. If a developer or company chooses to let you sign up in an app, Apple takes a 30% cut. And so of the apps, if you have a subscription or an in-app purchase that you have done inside of an app like Bear, the note-taking app, if you sign up for their monthly subscription or 1Password and you sign up in their app, Apple gets 30% of those profits, of that money, and 70% goes to the developer. Now, historically, developers have avoided that 30% cut in their revenue by telling people, sign up on our website or sign up outside of the app, and then you can log in Well, after you sign up into the app and you have your subscription, you know, whatever you paid for, you have access to. Again, this is just like how Netflix works. If you download the Netflix app on your iPhone, you cannot sign up for Netflix or create a Netflix account in the app. You cannot pay for Netflix in the app. You have to go to netflix.com in a web browser. You can even do it on your iPhone's web browser. You can go to Safari and sign up for Netflix, but you cannot do it in the app because Netflix does not want that 30% cut going to Apple. They want to retain all that revenue. So Hey.com did the same thing. You cannot sign up for Hey.com in the app or pay for the subscription in the app, just like Netflix. And now Apple has blocked their updates going to the app because they don't allow for the subscription signups in the app. Apple is basically saying if you have a subscription, you are required to have a way for people to sign up for that in the app. And thus, Apple gets 30% of that share. Now, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I find it in this moment 
to be a double standard because Apple seems to be picking and choosing who they make for signups and subscription purchases in the app. Again, I've been talking about Netflix in this example, and Netflix is allowed to do this. Netflix has an app regularly updated in the App Store. Apple has not made them change anything, and you cannot sign up for Netflix subscription in the app. But to make Hey.com do it, while they allow Netflix uh, to not have to have signups in the app, seems like a double standard to me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There definitely seems to be some miscommunication or double standard happening here. Obviously, um, apps like Spotify and other major companies who uh, bring in a lot of revenue because of their presence on the App Store uh, get kind of a special treatment or um, leeway when it comes to this type of behavior. Apple says that they have a a specific way of handling these kinds of judgments uh, by looking into if the app is either for business or a reader app. And a reader app uh, would be something that accesses purchase content from a separate store like Amazon's bookstore or a subscription service like Netflix Mm -hmm. um, or business service like Basecamp. But uh, looking at the Hey app, apparently they don't really fit into any of these according to Apple or at least the reviewer who reviewed the app. So uh, from what I've read, the bounce back from this is that the app should never have been approved in the first place, but that doesn't exactly sound like the usual Apple PR that we hear. So right. might be a rogue employee talking here. Right. And now one of Apple's stipulations, which Hey.com is abiding by, is that you also don't link to or point people to the website from the app where they can sign up. And so Netflix does this as well. If you download the Netflix app and you click like help me or you want to sign up, it does not give you a link outside to their website to sign up. You have a help center and like you can contact Netflix customer service from inside the app, but it does not shoot you over to their website to sign up or like load that in an in-app web browser. And Hey.com is doing the same thing. Hey.com, there's no link to their website. There's no like go here to sign up. And if you click the help me in the app's splash screen, it does have email us at support at Hey.com. Same thing that Netflix is doing, the contact us for support, but no links outside. Now I have run into this because I've done an app for a nonprofit that takes donations. And when you have an app in the iOS app store, you, again, unless you're going to do the 30% cut with Apple, you cannot link to a place where people can donate or give money within the app or even link to the website to give money. And so there's been times when our updates have not been approved because I missed some button in the app that loaded the company's website in the in-app web browser. And from that, you could donate. And so I understand not having the links to it, but Hey.com seems to be abiding by it. And I think it's going more so to the point that you just made, that they're kind of a picking and choosing or some kind of unspoken or unwritten qualifications. Because another example is Amazon, which you cannot buy an Amazon or Kindle ebook in the Amazon app because being a digital product would have to give 30% to Apple. So you can't buy a Kindle book in the Amazon app. You have to do it on the website. But Apple then made a deal or some exception for the Amazon Prime Video app where you can rent movies in-app. And it's unclear what kind of 
cut is being taken from that or if Amazon has to pay a certain percentage to Apple for those rentals and movie purchases. But it does seem like people like it seems like Apple is picking and choosing the companies that it allows to do this kind of stuff. So and now you had a link to Walt Mossberg's comments on Twitter. Walt Mossberg being, you know, historically one of the uh, pundits in Apple journalism and whatnot for the past couple of decades. Definitely someone to pay attention to. And I I tend to agree with his opinion on most things. He's steering the conversation more towards the 30%. I don't think that's exactly uh, where the conversation needs to be because obviously uh, you can debate all day if the 30% cut is too much or too uh, or unfair. The discussion needs to be more towards what Apple is doing per on a per app basis. And uh, here Walt Mossberg says that he doesn't want to call it a tax because it's more of a storefront service. You're paying to be allowed inside of this premium marketplace. Yeah. And as he stated, uh, Steve Jobs introduced it to applause 30%. Wow. That's amazing because the industry standard at the time was 50 to 70% cuts just to be on a digital Mm -hmm. storefront. Yeah. And I get this is Apple's platform. And so they can make the rules. Even if you were dealing with a brick and mortar store and you wanted your product in like Target or Walmart, Target is going to get some of the profits from your product because you are paying for the exposure and the accessibility of your product to be bought by consumers. And so, yeah, it's a huge service to companies when a company like Apple or Target uh, lets your product be on their shelves or virtual shelves in the App Store's case. But I still think that there needs to be consistency across the rules that Apple is setting. Absolutely. 30%, fine. Can't sign up in the app, fine. But you can't allow Netflix and Hulu, other video services, other platforms, project management platforms too. Like I use the app Flow from the company MetaLab. It is a project management platform like Basecamp, which are the makers of Hey. And our company pays for that project management platform directly to MetaLab. Sign up in, you know, when you download the app on your iOS device, all you get is a sign-in screen. You can't pay for the subscription there. You can't sign up. There's no link outside to the website where you can pay for it. You have to log in with the account that you created on the web. So I do think that this is an inconsistency in Apple's policy making or policy enforcing on these apps. And, and I do hope that they backtrack and allow Hey.com to continue updating their app. Whether or not the 30% conversation is going to come up next week at WWDC, um, you know, there were rumors that that was going to happen a year or two ago, that maybe they'll go down to 15 or 20%. percent not confident about that. I'm not sure if that will change. But at least allowing Hey.com to access to update their app and continue to be in the App Store, I think that's only fair given the rules that Apple is applying to all companies, all developers and apps uh, in its store. I think uh, this is the perfect storm of a situation for uh, Hey.com and Basecamp right now because they are in the middle of the antitrust investigation in Europe and WWDC being next week would be insane for Apple not to address this in some way at their conference. And there's been buzz around this for a while now. And like you said, the percentage has been rumored to drop or change in some way for years now. So I think the ball is definitely in Apple's court. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, Keep your eyes on appleinsider.com. If there's any updates to this story, 
You'll be sure to see it there. And if anything changes next week at WWDC. So a couple other quick news bits before we get into the main topic for the show. A Zoom changed their stance on security. Zoom had recently stated that the end-to-end encryption will only be available on paid Zoom plans. And thankfully, they backtracked and said that end-to-end encryption will be available to all Zoom users, even the free tier, which I think just makes sense. You know, I think security, end-to-end encryption on a service like Zoom should be a foundational thing. And I actually had a personal experience with Zoom recently. Uh, I don't know if you had heard of this or experienced this as well, but we actually tried doing a webinar-style Zoom call where we had 100 or so participants. And unfortunately, the link to join the Zoom call was shared on social media by someone who's going to be in the Zoom call. And I thought I had, I was hosting the meeting. I thought I had the security settings locked down enough, but I was wrong. And about three to five minutes into the Zoom call with 100 people, there was explicit video content popped up on the screen. Oh, no. Yes. And me not ever having to deal with it took a minute to figure out what to do. You can stop someone from sharing their screen because that was the issue. It's, you know, the video feed from people's Zoom calls is one thing, but what a lot of these spammers do and what they call Zoom bombing is they will screen share. And the more nefarious thing about that is if someone screen shares, it takes over everyone's Zoom screen that's on the call. You know, if if you mute everyone on a call and you have active speaker enabled on the Zoom call, you only see the person speaking. And if you as a host have everyone force muted, someone's video is not going to just come up because they're muted. They can't, you know, you can go to the gallery view and scroll through and you might see something lewd. You know, as long as they're muted, there's less of a chance of that. But screen sharing takes over the entire call and everyone sees it. And that's exactly what happened to us. And so I had to figure out there's a, a so many privacy settings in Zoom, one of them being that only hosts can screen share, not participants. And that was the setting I needed to have changed. And then when the speaker that we had on the call began to share their slides, another spammer began to annotate curse words on the slides. And I didn't realize that you have to turn off the annotation feature so other people can't annotate, uh, you know, inappropriate things on slides that people are presenting. It seems like uh, Zoom should have these off by default or have some kind of universal toggle here. I really think so. I mean, it was jarring to say the least when it happened, but so many settings, you know, and, and some of the settings are only available when you log into Zoom on Zoom's website, which I discovered that you can, there's a feature where you can make someone a co-host of a call and then only allow hosts and co-hosts to share their screen. But that setting is buried in like the Zoom account settings and advanced. And there's so many toggles. I do wish, like you just said, especially if Zoom detects that there's over 50 people in a call or maybe even over 25, that certain settings just switch to defaults. Like only the host can share their screen. Everyone comes in muted by default and only the host can unmute them. Things like that, because it is... Pretty wild, you know, and also just a word of warning, if you're going to have a Zoom call, do not share the link publicly on social media or post it on a website, you know, email the attendees as best you can. And also don't post your meeting IDs and passwords publicly uh, because again, spammers can get in that way. I don't know if if you've ever experienced or heard about that yourself. Oh yeah, it's definitely been uh, discussed uh, 
heavily amongst all the tech podcasts and everything over these past few months. I mean, everyone getting shoved into this uh, work from home environment means that we needed some way to communicate and face-to-face communication seems to be pretty effective. So Zoom, I think, just got surprised by the amount of attention they got right away. And they had the app set up for uh, simple use cases and uh, meetings, but had no idea that they would be just universally used across the board uh, the way they have these last couple of months. And all of these settings and all of these things that are hidden away are signs of them still playing catch up. And credit to Zoom. They honestly have a great product. I mean, of the many Zoom calls that I've been on in the last few months, it's a pretty solid platform and it is feature robust. I do think it's a great value, even when you have to have a higher paid tier for length or number of attendees. I mean, it is a great product and it's solid, but thankful that they are having end-to-end encryption for all tiers. That was the recent news as they work to tweak their features and change things that they have been quick, especially when there's been a lot of backlash about something like security, how it was being installed on the Mac uh, with, you know, different kind of backdoor methods. You know, they've been quick to change their installation process and quick to change the end-to-end encryption. Kudos to Zoom for for doing well, (laughs) pivoting often. Uh, during this time. Yeah, it seems they just want to be good internet citizens. And that's why they keep making these decisions that, you know, make some crowds angry, like the encryption decision or like the installation uh, pathways they were using previously on Mac. But so far, it seems they're not nefarious in any way. They're just making these simple mistakes uh, due to all this growth. Yeah, absolutely. So two other quick pieces of news. Mac trade-in program in-store has now officially launched in the U.S. and Canada. So in the United States and Canada, you can bring your Mac to an Apple store and get a trade-in offer for it and trade it in right there in the store. You used to be able to do this, but you would have to mail your Mac away, and now you can do it in-store. So I believe it's uh, multiple devices. You know, I think now it's iPhone, iPad, and Mac, uh, maybe even Apple Watch. I think you can trade them all in the stores now. Does that sound right? Yeah, it sounds right. Uh, So that is launched, and with that... A redesigned iMac icon was discovered in an alleged iOS 14 build. And so we talked about this rumor last week that an iMac redesign might be coming at WWDC this year. And the icon alludes to what it might be. Again, it's a very small, low resolution icon, doesn't give you a bunch of detail, but it does look like maybe it's an even bezel around the screen, decreasing that chin space uh, from the current model. I'm looking forward to this redesign if it is coming at WWDC. Curious what Apple would do uh, with a refreshed iMac. I talked to William last week about possibly uh, Face ID coming in an iMac. Do you think they'll bring Face ID to the iMac anytime soon? I mean, it's a possibility. They have the uh, T2 chip and pretty much every other Mac in the lineup, and this is the next one to get it, right? So uh, throwing in some biometrics wouldn't hurt. Well, but I also know you're probably not as interested in that because you are an iPad guy, and that's what I wanted to talk about today. Last week, William and I kind of did our macOS wish list for the next version of macOS that they will announce at WWDC on Monday. And so Wes being an iPad first and iPad pretty much main only user, wanted to hear one of the some of the things that you are looking for or hoping for in the next version of iPad OS. That's a good segue because uh, with the iMac redesign uh, on the horizon, everyone's still talking about uh, Apple and their external monitors. Um, 
where they mm. left the market from the cinema display a few years ago, Apple hasn't really offered anything on the consumer level since. I mean, the Pro Display XDR is amazing, but not really affordable, especially for someone who's using a computer half the price or more <laughs> of the uh, monitor itself. So um, I would definitely love to see, uh, as my first pick here, an external monitor support revamp from Apple and maybe some hardware support on their end. That would be great. Yes, I'd be very interested in that. I keep looking at the LG Ultrafons, but just they don't they don't do it for me. Now, which what monitor do you use with your iPad now? I have the original LG Ultrafine uh, 4K, the 21.5 inch version. It's all right for you. Been working all right. Uh, it's good. It is a little small. It does give you a little, you know, more screen real estate than the 13 inch iPad does. And sure. uh, luckily it's over USB-C. So you're getting all of the built-in features uh, that Apple likes to boast for these monitors uh, that works for MacBook as well. Like uh, you get the night shift tones and, and true tone and such across the USB-C feed. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. I remember I got my first cell phone which was a flip phone, yes, I'm dating myself, about 16 to 17 years ago. And over those years, I've been with all the big carriers. I've tried them all. But then I discovered there's another option that could give me that premium service I'm used to, but at a fraction of the cost. So I cut my wireless bill down to just 15 bucks a month, and I save hundreds of dollars by switching to Mint Mobile. So if you're looking to save on that wireless bill every month without sacrificing service, Mint Mobile is a no-brainer. I've been using Mint Mobile for several months now, and I can say their LTE speeds are super fast, you get great service, and it is an incredible value. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless service for just 15 bucks a month. Mint Mobile has a business model where there are no brick-and-mortar stores. Everything is online, so without those costs of retail, they pass that savings onto you. You go to mintmobile.com and you do everything online. Every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text, plus incredibly fast LTE. You can use the iPhone that you already have now with any Mint Mobile plan. You keep your phone number or get a new one. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile has you covered with a seven-day money-back guarantee. If you switch to Mint Mobile, you can get premium wireless service starting at just 15 bucks a month. I also find one of their owners to be pretty cool, Ryan Reynolds, Deadpool himself. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash appleinsider. That's mintmobile.com slash appleinsider. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash Apple Insider. Our thanks to Mint Mobile for sponsoring this show. We talked actually about shortcuts the last time you were on the show, and I've increased my shortcut usage, especially with HomeKit stuff. We've talked about that on HomeKit Insider, our other podcast on appleinsider.com. But I would love to see a better way to organize and sort shortcuts in the Shortcuts app. And maybe that is folders or some kind of groupings. But as you increase the list of shortcuts in that app, it becomes a little untenable to find. I mean, you can search, but I would love to be able to group them by use case or by company or something. And so maybe some kind of folder or organization method would be nice. Yeah, right now, uh, the app uh, Launch Cuts, I believe it's by uh, Adam Toe, makes this app that lets you sort 
all of your shortcuts into folders and now subfolders in recent update, and it works great. I mean, you don't have to reinvent the wheel here. Folders have organization has been a part of computing for the entirety of it, and I think Apple just needs to uh, throw in this what seemingly is a very tiny amount of support that we're asking for. Uh, organization is huge, especially if you're someone with you know a hundred or five hundred shortcuts. Now that launch cuts, I feel like I've heard of it before, but I'm just now looking at the app on the website. I would feel bad, man, because this could be easily Sherlocked if Apple launches, uh, you know, these kinds of changes. But but I'm gonna check it out. Uh, there'll be a link in show notes to launchcuts.com. A way to organize it, and all your shortcuts just appear in this app. Uh, so you actually have to run a shortcut to populate the app. And anytime you make changes to shortcuts itself, you need to rerun that shortcut. But they ha- the app is built with a very friendly UI that puts uh, everything very prominently placed for you to be able to figure this out. It's, it's very user-friendly and definitely worth a look if you're a shortcuts power user. All right, well, give me your next on the wish list. Uh, I got here uh, system-wide keyboard shortcuts. This one's a no-duh. I mean, if you look at the magic keyboard that Apple recently released, it is missing a function row. Um, Whereas third-party keyboards like the bridge keyboard has a full function row, lets you control things like brightness, volume, and playback. And not having those controls, it's it's very noticeable having to uh, scroll your mouse up to the control center every time you need to pause a song or something like that. It definitely gets tedious. So some kind of system-wide shortcuts support would be nice. And this has been hinted at inside of uh, other leaks before. Yes, that would be much appreciated. So one of the things that I would love to get also is clipboard management on iOS. Now, you know, you have the iCloud clipboard syncing, which I've been trying to use more and see if it's solid. It's it's working 80%-ish of the time, where if I copy something on my iPad, it'll paste on my Mac instantly, or at least in a few seconds. But I would love to see you know, better clipboard management. The third-party apps for clipboards on iOS are very limited because they can't see the clipboard uh, without you physically opening the app or launching like a widget from the dashboard, uh, just because Apple doesn't allow apps to see the clipboard, unlike on Mac where you can install an app and the app will just always be looking at the clipboard every time you copy something. Uh, so I would love to see if if Apple either does a first-party ability or some API, something where you can just have in the background getting your clipboard whenever you copy something and you can go to an app or someplace to reference all the things that you have copied in the last, you know, whatever, the last hundred clips or something like that. So better clipboard management uh, is something I'm hoping for. Yeah, definitely uh, fall into this camp. This is a big one. I mean, imagine you're text editing and you cut out a paragraph that you want to move and then you get distracted and copy a link. Well, you've just lost your paragraph and (laughs) there's nothing you can do about it. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So hoping for that. So give me your next one. Third party keyboards work with external keyboard support. I don't know when this was added, but apparently (laughs) they can do this already. Uh, Grammarly is a good example. Um, If you use Grammarly on uh, iPad OS, it appears as this little uh, third party keyboard at the bottom. Previously, only as a software keyboard, you could be typing and it get text suggestions or have it analyze the text as you go. Now, with an update this week, uh, you can actually have this active while you're using a hardware keyboard, but it doesn't work quite as well as having the software keyboard active. Sure. That's interesting. So better third-party keyboard support. Yeah. 
with external specifically keyboards. for external keyboards uh, because it stuff like Grammarly and uh, other text editing applications in the keyboard would definitely be nice. And then uh, your next one in the notes, and and we'll jump to that too. You're asking for better multitasking. I'll have to say, I got the Magic Keyboard a number of weeks ago, and I've been using it on my iPad. And I've been accustomed to it, gotten used to it, and actually enjoy the Magic Keyboard and the trackpad. But I do find that multitasking is a kind of a pain trying to do it with that mouse pointer. So tell me about the multitasking you're hoping for. Well, right now, everything's navigated as if you're using a ghost finger when you're using the pointer. I mean, they've improved on that quite a bit with their previous cursor update, but it's still pretty much a finger. And I think Apple needs to uh, work in a little bit more uh, cursor-like gestures like macOS has. I mean, when you drag in an app some or an object, uh, you have to press, hold, and wait, and you have to Mm-hmm. visibly see that the item that you selected has begun moving before you start moving it or the cursor then thinks that it's a copy uh, gesture or a, a text uh, cursor gesture so all of these things all these timings seem to be just a little bit too much or a little off um, so when you're dragging windows that can get in the way too um, if you have a slide over panel that you want to move left or right it is very easy to accidentally drop in the middle of your uh, multi window uh, split view yeah yeah i have found slide over is the most challenging multitasking thing to kind of enact um i'm not even sure i guess you know if you you drag the cursor all the way to the edge of the screen and then you push again the slide over can pop out but that seems a little unintuitive because you're pushing in the direction that's opposite of where it's sliding to and from does that make sense yeah uh, i spent the first up till even now, um, just discovering these hidden gestures. I mean, I wish, as annoying as it might be, there was just this onboarding that just went through every single thing you could do. On Twitter, I think a week ago, I was just saying, we need new cursor multitasking because I cannot dismiss this slide overview without accidentally dropping it into split view. Right. And someone just said, oh, use the same gesture you used to summon it in. And I, it just clicked. I, I had never thought, oh, if I just go to the edge of screen again it'll dismiss it it's insane that is yeah that's weird better multitasking support for sure this episode is brought to you by expressvpn you've heard me talk about how important it is to have a vpn before and on this show you've heard me talk a lot about my favorite vpn the one that i use personally on all my devices which is expressvpn especially if you're working from home now or maybe you're getting back out and working in an office or public spaces it's even more important to choose a VPN you can trust. Then I believe that ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market. Here's why. ExpressVPN doesn't log your data. If you choose to use a cheap or free VPN, they're probably making money selling your data to ad companies. ExpressVPN does nothing like that, and it doesn't log your data. They have a special technology called Trusted Server, and it makes it impossible for their servers to lag any of your info. Also, ExpressVPN is super fast. If you ever tried to stream video on some other cheap VPNs, you've probably noticed that it's slow and sluggish. I've been using ExpressVPN for months now, and the internet speeds are blazing fast, and I never have an issue streaming HD quality videos. And ExpressVPN is super easy to use. Launch the app, tap one button, and you're connected to the VPN of your choice automatically. You don't have to input or program anything. You fire up the app, click one button, you're connected. And it's not just us at AppleInsider.com saying it. Wired, CNET, The Verge, and many other tech journals rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. 
So protect yourself with the VPN that I use and trust. Use my link at expressvpn.com slash Apple Insider today and you get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's an awesome deal. That's expressvpn.com slash Apple Insider. Visit expressvpn.com slash Apple Insider to get three months free on a one-year package. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this episode. My next on the wish list is a dedicated or better iCloud keychain app. And I talked about this a little bit last week with William, but you know, you can save passwords with iCloud keychain on iOS and it can autofill. And even though I have one password on my iPhone and I have it set to be an option to autofill, it really feels like iCloud keychain is preferred by the device. And so whether I'm on a website or logging into an app, you know, really wants me to pick the iCloud keychain option uh, from that menu that pops up. You know, I notice on iPad OS, if I'm trying to log into something and I hit the share button and which again, that button is kind of weird because it has so many other things it does besides sharing, but very chaotic. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, it's a little weird. So I hit the share button and I click one password, you know, one password authenticates with my face ID and I choose a login from the list, it'll auto put that information in and log me in and it will copy the one-time six-digit passcode to the clipboard of my iPad so I can just paste it and go right in. If I do it with that method, hitting the share button, one password, picking the login. But if you tap a login window or login form, and the list comes up initially, you can see in the very small print, several logins, you know, it'll, I think it'll try to surface your most used logins for that app or website. And you'll see like this login, which it might be from iCloud Keychain if it doesn't say anything different. And it'll also offer you some of those 1Password logins and it'll say like 1Password under the email address or whatever to let you know that's coming from your 1Password account. But if you tap it from there, it does not automatically copy the six-digit authentication code. You have to hit the share button, hit 1Password and copy it that way. Uh, it won't work if you just use that little initial menu that pops up. That's been my experience. So I would love a better overall keychain experience. And if Apple could add one-time passwords to the password saving feature, maybe this would necessitate a standalone app but that would be fine. But some kind of improvement to the Keychain app. Do you experience that when you do password autofilling on your iPad? I used to use uh, 1Password and had this feature uh, built in, and it, it was definitely very nice. I don't recall actually having to use uh, the share sheet like you say. Um, maybe this is a new limitation. But yeah, it's definitely frustrating when you're trying to log into something and it just either doesn't work or ignores you. One way I overcome this is... Um, uh, like I discussed last time I was on the show, the shortcut to the keychain and settings, um, being able right. to do that from my iPhone and then use Universal Clipboard to copy and paste it into whatever I'm doing on the iPad. You know, one of the coolest features, I think it was iOS 13, it was introduced is when you do have a two-factor authentication via text message and Apple surfaces that six-digit code. You know, if you're on a website on your iPhone or iPad, and it texts you and it just lets you tap that six digit and logs you right into the website. That is an incredible feature. And I would love to see that brought to the iCloud keychain saved logins uh, as well, if they it could add that feature. So, so we'll see. So give me your next 
wish list item? This one's a little more superficial. Uh, alternative icons. I've always been uh, one to customize uh, my I, my home screens as much as I can. Having come from Android first years ago, I definitely uh, relish the opportunity to just be able to fully design whatever I'm using. Right now, I can pretty much do what I want with most icons, third-party apps, but Apple apps don't have any alternate icon choices, especially for dark mode. Every one of their icons almost is a bright white and blue or yellow icon, and it's it's crazy to me. That would be interesting. I feel like that's probably the least likely feature of all oh, the ones we've talked about. <laughs> yeah, that, that that this one is the my hopes and dreams more than uh, actually expecting Apple to do anything with it. Right, for sure. Now you had another bullet point uh, above that too, the three pane multitasking, and it reminded me. I was on Twitter talking about something the other day. Do you remember Twitter's original iPad app that had like this three pane navigation method? Do you remember that at all? I don't think so. I've I've pretty much always used Twitterific. Oh, okay. Twitter's original iPad app, it was a three-pane system. Uh, you can open up the three. The farthest left was kind of like your you know, profile, mentions, DMs, like those shortcuts. The middle pane, which if you didn't have anything else open, you would have just those two, was your timeline. You could just scroll through your timeline. And if you were to click a link in your timeline, it would slide in a third pane and you would be able to that website would start loading in that third pane and you could actually continue scrolling in the middle as the website would load. And so you could keep looking through your timeline as that website loads. And then when it's done loading, you can focus on that one and then dismiss it or leave it and then keep scrolling. And I found it to be an incredibly innovative design. I feel like even now it would be a better method than what Twitter has on their stock iPad app. Does Twitterific have any kind of ability like that or how is it laid out twitterific uh works pretty great as a full screen app i don't think it's a three pane it's a two pane experience but they also um divvy everything up pretty cleanly and allow some customization for icons for navigation but i know what you're talking about that a lot of ipad apps uh, took that three pane approach and i think apple has been implementing more of that into some of their apps like mail uh the third pane being the content specifically but uh, Twitter itself using a browser in the third pane sounds pretty interesting. I, I would like to see that in the modern app too. Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool from what I remember. Anyway, one other thing that I'm hoping for, I don't know if we'll see it in this WWDC or if it will take iOS 14 coming in the fall, but Final Cut on iPad, I would love to see it brought. You know, there's some great video editing apps on iPad now. Obviously you have iMovie, but you also have Adobe Premiere Rush and the Luna video editing app. You can do multiple tracks and multiple pieces of audio it's been used by uh, i know andrew uses it and others for editing video but i would love to see apple's first party final cut come to the ipad this seems like a pretty obvious uh, move from apple um we need pro apps on the ipad we need some kind of representation from apple's developers to show uh, third-party devs exactly what they can pull off using ipad hardware and that's just completely missing right now yeah so maybe we'll see it in WWDC wishlist item. Uh, shortcuts, uh, upgrades. Uh, one of one of the big ones being uh, being able to execute shortcuts from the home screen. Right now, if you add a shortcut to the home screen, you click on it. It just opens shortcuts, runs it, and then uh, proceeds from there. 
that can get pretty messy, especially for just utility type shortcuts, uh, jumping around between two, three different apps before getting to your final destination. Yes, that would be much appreciated. I agree. Well, and my final wish, and this is kind of, we've touched on in the HomeKit Insider, and I'm not sure if William and I might have talked about it last week, but a better, improved, maybe different home app. And, you know, there's some great third-party options to manage your HomeKit devices on iOS. You know, on HomeKit Insider, we talked about Home Plus 4, and that developer does an awesome job uh, taking the HomeKit devices and, you know, giving you a powerful app. But I'd love to see Apple's first-party option become a little more robust, maybe make it a little more straightforward, or I'm not sure the right word, but for automations and some of the time-based and triggers uh, in HomeKit devices, I would love to see that app be improved dramatically. And then also that be brought to the Mac app, which is a Catalyst app. I'd like to see that improved as well. Yeah, uh, I use an app called HomeDash. Uh, that's a mm. pretty fancy third-party app that lets you kind of build up your own uh, kind of widget centers for each room uh, of your house, and it works pretty well. I would definitely love to see some kind of change to the home app because right now the layout is a little bit plain and it's hard to navigate if you have a lot of items because everything gets the same size square with the same kind of text and it can be hard to differentiate between a light and a switch mm -hmm. uh, just for at first glance so some kind of uh, gooey representation of the home would be nice then uh, this home dash app looks pretty good too i just i'll put a link in show notes to home dash you can check it out there you might hear about that on HomeKit Insider pretty soon. That looks pretty cool. Well, was that it? That your uh, exhaustive list? I wouldn't say exhaustive, but uh, that's definitely <laughs> the the top yeah. uh, priorities here. I just want to see a little bit more user friendly. You know, it's funny we didn't mention uh, sitting here on a podcast. Um, one of my biggest hopes is audio control across um, right. iOS, iPad OS. That is true. You know, Ferrite is the app that I've mentioned many times, but it's what I edit with. And you can record with Ferrite. You can even attach, you know, like a Focusrite or some other sound USB device to the iPad. You can even see, I think, up to four or eight channels in Ferrite now. And so it's very powerful, uh, the kind of devices that you can connect to your iPad and work with. But yes, across multiple apps or across the system, uh, sound and audio device options are very limited. Uh, you know, there's no overall input or output settings uh, like you have on the Mac. And yes, that would be great. And I would love to see APIs for those things. So people like the Audio Hijack creators, uh, who also make an awesome uh, app called Loopback, which allows you to really customize and group audio inputs and outputs, sending it to multiple places. I use Audio Hijack. I'm using it right now, actually to record this podcast. So would love to see that stuff be brought to the iPad and that would really make it uh, powerful. I might do my podcast recordings on it if, it if that was made available. So yeah, that's a great. Yeah, I'm using Ferrite Studio to uh, record right now. Mm -hmm. Definitely definitely would be nice to be able to record the call and have the call on the same device and uh, such like that. I think with all of the noise uh, going on in the podcasting realm with Spotify acquiring people and stuff like that, I think it would be very strange to have Apple completely silent in the podcast area next week. So maybe we'll see something. Yes, we'd love to. Well, let us know, listeners, what are your wishes for iOS and iPadOS at WWDC this year? You can tweet at Wes and I. Our Twitter handles are in show notes. You can also email us. 
All of those links are in show notes. Everything we talked about, links are there. And you can check out the article on appleinsider.com slash podcast. Check the article out there when it goes up. Also, be on the lookout for that bonus episode on Monday after the Apple keynote. And we'll do a rundown and summary of everything that Apple announces this year. And if you haven't yet, we'd appreciate a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. That helps us get discovered by people searching for Apple news and technology content. And don't forget to check out HomeKit Insider, the second podcast from AppleInsider.com, all about HomeKit devices and home automation. They have a new episode that will be coming out Wednesday after the WWDC keynote. It typically launches on Monday, but we'll do it Wednesday just in case any exciting HomeKit announcements come at this WWDC. Thanks for tuning in this week. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>